We come now to the second of the two chapters dealing with controversy. And this is the chapter that is leading up to chapter 13, where we will get the third of Jesus' five sermons, echoing the five books of Moses. And today we run across two controversies involving the Sabbath. And you might wonder, why do these stories come up where they, where they come? And it's clear that I think that Matthew is gathering some rather disparate material. But um, as you may see from the first page of my multi-page handout, there is a reason why these controversy stories happen here, I believe. Last week, Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. And he said, my yoke is comfortable, that collar that an animal would wear around his shoulders, often as a team of animals to carry a load. And my burden is light. And we noticed that the burden can't really be a whole lot lighter because Jesus raised the bar when it came to law keeping. He did a lot to improve it, and he did a lot to make it easier in that he removed some of the futility and some of the legality behind the law. And we're going to see that in action today. And so we find here an example of what Jesus meant when he said that the yoke that he's asking us to carry would be comfortable and the load would be light. And the Pharisees, by contrast, are those who are still carrying an overly heavy burden not through any fault of their own, but because they took an overly literal understanding of the law. It wasn't that they took the Bible literally. I, I get nervous when people caution me not to take the Bible so literally because I'm afraid that what they're going to ask me to do is to overlook something that's obvious. But by taking the Bible literally, what the Pharisees were doing was adding a lot more to it to create kind of a buffer zone between the laws that they were keeping and the laws that they were required in the law of Moses to keep. And so in our passage today, we're going to see a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees on the issue of keeping the Sabbath. And that will take us through verses 1 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 21, we're given something of an interlude where Matthew quotes the longest passage of the Old Testament in the entire gospel which tells us there's something important to be learned. And it just so happens that we're about midway through the gospel, and as we'll see, Matthew's summary of Jesus' gospel comes from Isaiah, and it actually, in an incredible way, sort of encapsulates everything that Matthew has been teaching us about Jesus thus far. And the point, as always, is that Jesus is the one to reckon with if you want to have life, and if you want to understand the meaning of life. I was reminded this week of the challenge that uh, the church faces and the uh, opportunity that comes to preachers week by week. Because the only way for the world to continue to know that Jesus is the answer is for Jesus to continually to be put before people, his teachings presented to people, his miracles uh, highlighted to people. And why is that difficult? Well, one of the reasons why it's difficult is that our culture is addicted to what is new. We have this idea ever since the Enlightenment, and I probably said it before, but that since around the 1700s and only since then 
have people ever gotten the idea that things are getting better? Prior to the Enlightenment, if you wanted to know how to live the good life, you went back to the sages, to the heroes of old, to the great leaders and, uh, and forerunners, people like Aristotle and Plato, and of course, Jesus. But now, I mean, if the movie's two years old, we don't even bother to go and watch it anymore because it's old hat. So one of the challenges that the church faces, and I uh, know that you are involved in this, and I want to encourage you to continue to put Jesus and the claims of Jesus before people, because when we do that, the Spirit of God continues to speak. He came as the answer. He remains the answer. He is alive today and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. And the only way for men and women and children in a culture like ours to hear about Jesus is through the reading and the proclamation of the word. So today we're going to learn a little bit about keeping the law, Jesus style. And I've called the first uh, 15 verses, the first 14 verses, the Sabbath, an example of Jesus style law biding. And I'm going to focus on how we are to keep the law. <laughs> but if you're like me, you're a little confused because um, sometimes when you're reading Paul's epistles, you might get the idea that we're freed from the law. We're no longer under the law. So why is Glenn going to take 10 or 15 minutes to tell us how to keep the law when Paul seems to say that that's passe? Well, there's a tension here to be sure, and the time isn't ours now to resolve it. But I want to say, first of all, that Jesus' teachings are absolutely unequivocal. He has come to fulfill the law, and he expects his followers, including his Christian followers, to continue to keep by the spirit of the law, and as I have said before, to go deep in terms of the righteousness that he advocates. What about Paul then? Well, for any of you who have uh, graced a seminary or uh, a Bible class in the past 10 or 15 years, you know that there's uh, currently kind of a revolution in Paul taking place. And it's called the new perspective on Paul. And I don't want to pass judgment on it. I, I kind of go back and forth. I'm a bit dubious. But one thing that's becoming clear is that Paul is a little bit harder to understand than we thought. And he doesn't mean that we should disregard the law. Paul's issues when he talks about the law have to do with Gentiles sort of doing what the Jews are doing in terms of their law keeping. And Paul is saying that Gentiles are a different kettle of fish. So if you're thinking that my talking about law-abiding today is passe and unpauline, it is not. Uh, the quest for the understanding of Paul continues. I have a, a good friend who um, is a New Testament scholar, and he's a, a historian of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I get. It couldn't be clearer. Paul? I have a hard time understanding Paul, but here we are in the heart of the first gospel, uh, the longest of the synoptic gospels, and Matthew could not be more clear that Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And unless your, your, your righteousness, your law keeping exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you beat the champions, as it were, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So towards the end of our reflection on Sabbath keeping, I'm actually going to revive the notion of keeping the Sabbath. And you'll see in the handout that there are eight or nine questions from the new Anglican catechism on the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath. And I want to suggest that we have some work to do.
So here we begin, and I read again, and this time I've, <clears throat> I've advanced a little millimeter in my word processing skills, and I found a way to get all of the scriptures on one page rather than having this big gap. And I have endnotes instead of footnotes. So the whole passage is here on the front of this uh, two-sided handout. And it's a translation with notes that contains more notes and comments than I have time to share and that you have the patience to hear. So for that, you can probably be grateful. So Jesus begins on the Sabbath, walking through the grain fields. And as he's walking through the grain fields, his disciples get hungry. And so they notice the, the little wheat kernels on the top of the grain and they, they pluck the heads off because they're ripe. And they rub their hands together to get rid of the, uh, the shell. And they find the grain in their hand and they start eating the grain. Now the issue is not that they're eating grain from somebody else's field. That is actually allowed in the book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of a, a social security system. You're allowed to glean grain from a neighbor's field and have a bit. You're not allowed to get a sickle and to sort of knock the whole crop down and hog it, but you, could, you can snack as you will. Well, the Pharisees have been grained and taught that this is reaping. The little handshaking and the gathering of little pieces in your hand and the nibbling of grains is reaping and is therefore forbidden. So when the Pharisees see this, the disciples eating and plucking grains on the Sabbath, they say in verse 2, and they've been looking for an opportunity probably to catch Jesus, and they think, we've got him red-handed. Look in verse 2, your disciples are doing what is not permitted to do on the Sabbath. Now, for the rest of the paragraph, Jesus is going to invoke different ways of responding to the Pharisees on their terms. He's going to use an example from the former prophets, and then he's going to use an example from the Pentateuch, and then he's going to use an example based upon their own understanding about whether it's legal to heal on the Sabbath. And so one could draw from here, from this uh, passage, a quite rich lesson on Jesus's sparring with the rabbis and with the Pharisees on their terms. But when all is said and done, the biggest difference is found in verse 8. When Jesus says, and I've translated it quite literally, for Lord is he of the Sabbath, this son of man. Lord of the Sabbath is he, this son of man. He says in verse 6, a few verses earlier, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple may not mean a whole lot to you and to me, but that is an enormous claim. I mean, the temple is where people go to worship. It's the locus of worship. They direct their prayers to the temple. They offer their sacrifices to the temple. They understand that God actually lives in the temple. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, something a lot greater than the temple is staring you right in the face. And here we presented with the claims of Jesus. And here is one of the many clues that we'll see in the passage that Jesus is the answer to life. And he's the one that points us towards a healthier understanding of living a life that pleases God and that honors our neighbors. So in response, Jesus invokes a story that comes from 1 Samuel 21. And he says to them, haven't you read? And of course they have read. They all know the Old Testament very well. What David did, when he was hungry and those with him. How they went into the house of God and began eating the loaves of presentation, which was not permissible for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Now, if you look at the, um, 
the uh, last page of the handout, um, the one with uh, the multiple staples, where it says parallel passages, right on the, on the back of the, uh, the multi-handed one, under number two, we have 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. And I want to read it just a little bit in, in, uh, in elaboration because there are some important lessons for us here to glean. I want to start um, in verse 2. So we're last page, section 2, 1 Samuel 21, verse 2. David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know of anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. And then David goes on and explains to the priest, from whom he's going to ask permission to take some of the showbread, which normally isn't permissible, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest, that is the man in charge of the temple, answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. David goes on to describe how the men are in a state of purity. And so in verse six, we read, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So Jesus is invoking uh, um, this episode and he's really using shorthand, which is why I read the larger story. Because Jesus is doing a number of things here. He's saying, if you read your Bible a little more carefully, you won't be quite so quick to criticize. And then he compares himself implicitly with David. And this is a claim of Jesus to be the son of David. Jesus is the greater David. And he reminds the Pharisees that there was a David who was on a mission with some of his followers in the past. And their mission was so great and so significant that they actually got permission to enter the temple, David did, which normally wouldn't be allowed, and to take some of the holy bread and to give it to the disciples of David for the special mission that they were conducting on behalf of the king. Well, the analogy isn't too hard to follow, is it? I think Jesus is implicitly saying, you know what, guys, <clears throat> I get your point, but I think you're missing it, really. And I can invoke a lesser David who was also on a mission with his disciples, and he got permission from the guy who was in charge of the temple to take some of the bread that wasn't permitted, and it was given to them. So I've made an argument already from the second part of the Bible, the former prophets. But let me also give you another example, and I invite you to read again, and this comes in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrated the Sabbath? and were guiltless. Well, the issue here is that on the Sabbath, uh, somebody's got to do the work to set up um, the Sabbath services. And so the priests on the Sabbath are exempt. And for any who are preachers who've ever felt guilty about preparing sermons and setting up for church on Sunday, the analogy I think is pretty justifiable, that somebody has to get ready so that other people can worship. And here again, Jesus uses the, the motif of priests and the temple. The priests in the temple are allowed on the Sabbath to do work. And then Jesus trumps them. And he says, and I tell you what, something greater than the temple is here. Um, there are several scholars, N.T. Wright included among them, 
who opine that, um, the, uh, that, that Jesus understood himself to be the temple. Let me find my notes uh, quickly on the third page of the handout. Uh, it's actually on the second page of the handout at the top above verses 9 to 14. In this section, we are reminded, and here I'm quoting from a commentary, Jesus is presented not only as the one who is the new David, but Jesus also speaks of himself as greater than the temple, which pushes readers into the latter days of the monarchy. Jesus is also the one who can enter the temple and eat the bread. As N.T. Wright has asserted, this assigns to the Pharisees the role of the persecuting Saul or the spying Doeg. The disciples are the companions of David, and Jesus is David himself. Just as David flees from Saul, Jesus, knowing the Pharisees' plot against him, will soon withdraw after the encounter with the Pharisees. Like David, Jesus is approved by the crowds, but opposed by the leaders of Israel. So there's kind of a, a, a rehearsing of Israel's history here that brings us to the time of the temple. But Jesus understands himself to, the, to be the temple. He cleared it as an act of purification. And we remember him saying, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. In other words, I will soon be the place where people come to worship. People will bow down and people will come to me. And the Gentiles, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, will come to me, the new temple, the new Jerusalem, and worship. And then he gives us a lesson on the Sabbath. We've already gotten a few. We're going to review them in a second. But he says... If you had known what the meaning is of, I desire not mercy, mercy, not sacrifice, you would not condemn the guiltless, for Lord is he of the Sabbath. Well, let me continue through the next uh, Sabbath episode, and then we'll quickly draw some lessons on law-keeping from it. Jesus goes from there into their synagogue. And... Matthew zooms the camera on a man with a dry hand. And the Pharisees see this coming. They think, ah, he's going to be tempted to do this on the Sabbath, but there's no reason why he couldn't do this on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday or a Sunday. So they ask him, so to us accuse him. Is it possible to heal on the Sabbath? And then Jesus again turns and he invokes logic and sensibility and charity. And he says, well, let me ask you guys a question. I think if you had an animal that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you're allowed to reach forth your hand and to pull that poor animal out of the pit and raise it up, right? Well, let me tell you, this fellow over here with the dried hand is a whole lot more valuable than a sheep. Now, it's interesting, the Pharisees could have come back and said, well, yeah, but why don't you wait until tomorrow? Here, I think you see the heart of Jesus. He sees the withered hand of that man, and he sees it as being far longer than one day, too long that this individual has been suffering with the dry hand. Here you are thinking about, if I were to have a sheep, and if I will have a sheep, I will pluck it out, but look right here, there's a man with a, winder, with a withered hand. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? How much more valuable is Mike, than any other mammal on earth. How much more valuable is Evan, is Echo, is Renata, is Ilana, Joseph, Stephen? If there is a problem with one of them, 
it's a good day to do something that brightens their day and eases their situation. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he extended it, and it was restored to health as the other. And exiting, the Pharisees took counsel on how they might destroy him. Well, that's pretty damning criticism of the Pharisees. Um, as uh, as Marion noticed at staff meeting this week, when we were talking about this passage, she said, imagine, you know, Jesus had just healed this guy and wondering about what you can do on the Sabbath, and then they go ahead and plot how to destroy Jesus on the Sabbath. Pharisees get it wrong, don't they? In December of 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was up in the air. It was a new wide-bodied L-1011-1 TriStar. Something happened in the cockpit that caught the attention of all three pilots. A flashing light bulb on the cockpit that they could not explain. All three pilots were saying, what's with this thing? I don't know. Did you push the safety button? No, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Why is it flat? It just went off again. No, now it's on again. It's off again. These three guys spent a lot of time in the cockpit pondering that light bulb to the point where they didn't know that the plane was descending and it crashed into the Florida Everglades, killing 101 people. The first wide-bodied crash of a, the first crash of a wide-bodied aircraft in the airline industry. 75 people were survived and 101 were killed. You know, there's something about us that just kind of loves to be in control and to fix on details. You know, we have this little item over here that's not quite right. This man isn't following our laws about the Sabbath. This could be dangerous, could set a kind of a precedent. And so um, the, the, uh, the Pharisees basically crash the whole principle of the Sabbath, that it's possible to do good and that there's precedent. In Mark, it says, before Jesus says, um, for the Lord of the Sabbath am I, the Son of Man, he says, remember, folks, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. How could those pilots have been so stupid? How could the Pharisees have been so stupid? Well, let me tell you something. At least those pilots were flying. At least those Pharisees were keeping the Sabbath. But I have a feeling that in the Christian community today that something has happened that really is quite extraordinary. That somewhere between the debate about keeping the Sabbath on a Saturday or on a Sunday, and something about the previous generation of parents that I had, who made me sort of wear my Sunday best and not play football and wear my bow tie and my sports jacket as I watched the other kids playing soccer on Sundays, somehow Sabbath keeping has kind of gone pretty far away. So before we're too hard on the Pharisees, I think we need to ask ourselves, well, okay, they dropped the ball in the middle of the game, but some of us, I worry, are on the sidelines. And the Sabbath was never abrogated. If you look uh, under the issues on, um, on the, the handout, issues number one, what is the significance of the Sabbath? There are some helpful reminders there about the importance of the Sabbath and how we ran into this problem of disregarding the Sabbath. And part of it came as a result of the good news that was discovered with the Reformation. Um, it had been around before to some extent, but it was Luther that championed it. 
And if you read the Augsburg Confession, for example, which I have at the top of page, um, I didn't get the page numbers this time, but I think it's page three. The Lutheran doctrine officially is the scriptures, not the church, abrogated the Sabbath. For after the revelation of the gospel, all ceremonies of the Mosaic law can be omitted. Now, there's nowhere in scripture where that is taught. Nevertheless, for the sake of order and worship, Sunday as the Lord's Day was substituted by the church for the Saturday Sabbath. And it seems that the church was the more pleased to do this for the additional reason that men and women would have an example of Christian liberty and would know that keeping neither the Sabbath nor any other day is necessary. So here's the thing. We don't keep the Sabbath in order to win points with God. And clearly Jesus has introduced a more humanitarian and less legalistic component to it. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I got to looking at different confessions and catechisms, and then I thought, the Anglican Network in Canada has its own catechism. What does it say? And so on the bottom of page three, questions 290 to 299, there is some very helpful guide from our own Anglican Network in, in, uh, in Canada, Anglican Church in North America catechism. And it upholds basically what I believe to be the teaching of Jesus. And that is that the Sabbath is something that's important to keep. Now, Paul reminds us it doesn't matter which day necessarily. Don't get hung up on the details, but the principle of a one-day rest in seven. When you set aside other things and you do what is refreshing, what is worshipful, what is good, what is out of the ordinary for your own restoration is a command. Above the catechism, which I'll leave you to, to read on your own, it's, it's uh, something that we began to go through about a year ago and then left because of some staff changes and such, but there it is for your reading. My favorite commentator in his second edition of Matthew's commentary says, and it's at the top of the same page with an asterisk, and he says, I have been convinced, and he says, after writing the second edition of this commentary, that Matthew's Jesus still wants the observance of a day of rest under the lordship of the son of man's love command in short he wants a non-legalistic yet real day of rest few realities so lovingly protect human beings today from mass exploitation as a day of rest and then a few others chime in brothers and sisters the comfortable the yoke that jesus wants to put on us can't be enshrined in a code because we have a way of corrupting codes. As soon as we think we got a corner on righteousness, we create a blind spot that we can't overcome. And so Jesus reminds us that doing good, that going to the synagogue, Jesus went to the synagogue, we're told in Luke on Saturdays as was a regular practice, doing good on the Sabbath, not getting hung up on the, on, the, uh, on the minors, but focusing on the majors of rest, refreshment, devotion to God is something that is important. I need to check how I'm spending one and seven days a week. And if you're in the same boat, I think these words apply to you as well. Now we come to the second part verses 15 to 21. And if you're feeling as though the sermon has been heavy thus far, I agree. I think it kind of has. But it's almost as though Matthew knows that it's been heavy. 
because we're told in verses 15 to 21 that Matthew gives us a break from the controversies of the past two chapters. And he says, I just want you guys to take a little refreshment. I mean, I'm quoting Isaiah here to explain why Jesus didn't kind of go after the Pharisees more aggressively and why Jesus took the kind of stance that he did towards being a Messiah. But scholars have indicated that Matthew wants us to give us a mid-gospel break and a mid-gospel reminder of what his teachings are. So under verses 15 to 21 on the handout, you don't need to look at it, I'll read it. Bruner writes, after the rejection and controversy that preceded in chapters 11 and 12, this quotation comes on like a blue sky of hope. This text is like people hung, hiking under a grim weather front, and suddenly a blue sky breaks out for a moment so that the reader can see the big picture of the whole gospel. The Isaiah blue sky is God's perspective on Jesus's role in the history of the world. And not only from this divine perspective, and only from this divine perspective, will history make sense. So let's take a look at this passage from Isaiah chapter 42, because it brings good news. And whatever else the gospel is, it is always ultimately good news, including the admonition about the Sabbath. <laughs> take a break. Enjoy life. Worship God. Refresh yourself. Enjoy your family. Don't be a slave to work. Knowing this, Jesus withdrew from there. In the face of persecution and controversy, Jesus does as he advised his disciples to do in chapter 10. If you face persecution in one place, flee to another city. So Jesus here decides to withdraw. Many follow him and he heals them all. Jesus' compassion abounds. And then we're told again this thing which is the marvel of the messianic secret. In verse 16, he warned them that they would not reveal what he did for them. Jesus, if you want to be famous, don't hide your, you know, your light under a bushel. And then Matthew goes on and tells us why Jesus did that. He didn't want to be up front. If he'd drawn crowds, they probably would have made him a king, and he would have had a difficulty controlling his own understanding of messiahship. So he tells them to be quiet, and then Matthew says, guys, I want to remind you, I know this Jesus wasn't the one that you were expecting, but he's the one that was prophesied. Reminds me, my sister-in-law sent my brother a, uh, um, a card, because she was looking for somebody who was kind of, I don't know, dignified and romantic and whatever else, and my brother's a great guy, but uh, he, he didn't exactly fill the bill. So in this card, she said, she sent him a card, and on the cover it said, you are the answer to my prayers. And on the inside, it says, you're not exactly what I prayed for, but apparently you are the answer. <laughs> well, my friends, this is what Jesus was to the, to the Jews of the day. He was the answer to their prayers. He wasn't exactly what they were expecting. Far from it. Uh, he fulfilled the Messiah in Old Testament ways, but in ways and combinations that just blew them away. For one, you know, that God would be the Messiah. There's a kind of a category thing there that, that was pretty hard for them to overcome. And here, in essence, Matthew reminds us that although Jesus wasn't what they prayed for, he was the answer to it anyway. And in it comes a marvelous picture of what we've been reading and learning about Jesus through the whole gospel. Behold, my servant 
son. Here's a word that means both son and servant. Bruner reminds us that we began the story of Matthew with the story of a child, and that some nine times we were told about this child, this child. And then at Jesus' baptism, he's called a son and one in whom the Lord is well pleased. So Bruner notes that verse 18 summarizes Matthew chapter 1 to 7, as it were. I will place my spirit upon him is in fulfillment of what also happened at the baptism. He will proclaim justice to the peoples. Well, this is pretty much tantamount to the healings of Jesus and to his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, where he proclaims peace, joy, comfort to the poor, to the weak and to the feeble. And now comes the point, probably, of Matthew including it here. Why didn't Jesus tear a strip off the Pharisees? He shall neither quarrel nor cry out, nor shall anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not in Jerusalem on a rooftop. He's in Galilee. And we've just heard in verse 16 and 15, many crowds came to him and he healed them all. This is like starting a revolution from Kenora, Ontario. You know, you go to Ottawa. It's going to work a little more easily. Start in Ottawa, Montreal, Kenora, not so good. But it was in fulfillment that Jesus did his ministry in the Kenoras of Israel. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not distinguish. This gets back to the rest. The feeble, the stressed out, the burnt out. Jesus is not going to do anything but comfort. He won't harm you. He won't break you. Psychology Today has an excerpt on burnout, and it describes it. I don't think I brought it with me, but it's in an excerpt in psychology today that it's a sense of exhaustion that comes as a result of stress from the workplace, from the environment, from things that are beyond your control, from your family situation. An apt translation of a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish is a Christian, a Gentile, who is feeling burnt out and stressed in 2021, he will not extinguish because he's on a mission to bring peace to the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And this emphasis on in his name, non-Jewish peoples will find hope actually takes us to the end of the gospel, where in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then he says that commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. I mentioned to mention it, I meant to mention it before, but didn't, but I will now. One of the reasons why the yoke of Jesus is light is he has your back. He's got you covered with his presence. The Pharisees, pretty intimidating people. What are those disciples doing eating on the Sabbath? Jesus said, don't you remember how the other David, me, was eating along with the others? And it's okay. My friends, Jesus has got your back. The yoke that he sets upon us is challenging for sure. But it's comfortable. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. After all, this is God in the flesh in the person of the Messiah. And his mission 
is to give life not only to Israelites, but also to Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples like you and me in this room this afternoon. There's an invitation in the gospel to be a follower of Jesus, and I hope you will make a decision to do that, whether for the first time or all over again this afternoon. Amen.